Hi, I'm John. And I'm Genevieve. And this week, because Olivia is doing more interesting things, we're gonna talk we're gonna talk nonsense for an hour. I'm sorry, there's nothing there's nothing else I can really say. It's we're talking nonsense for an hour. Um, so Genevieve, how are you? Happy New Year. Thank you. Happy New Year to you. It's been a while since you've been on the podcast. Um, it is. I've, I've moved to the heartland. I'm a real American now. You don't no know longer... where the ocean is anymore. No, I don't. I'm no longer a coastal elite. I, uh, you just live in Wisconsin. Someone... Some would say that's worse. Uh, how could you say that? Here in the Dairyland, uh, where my vote for president and Senate actually matters, um, I'm one of the most important citizens in the United States, you know, um, I, mean, I have, I have lost my right to have an abortion. That's true. Yeah. But I've gained so much in, um, in cheese and other dairy products. So, you know, it's a wash. Is that progress? It's a lateral move. You know, it's a lateral move away from out of the swamp and into like. Um, I've noticed that I, I have no idea if this is like purely just my personal experience. I've had a lot less mansplaining in Wisconsin than in, uh, the old District of Columbia. There's a lot less just assuming I don't know anything. In Wisconsin. So, in Wisconsin. Part of that Midwest uh, niceness, I suppose. Right. Um, I got no explanation other than that. I don't know how to feel about that. I'm uh, tangentially relevant. Um, that's I nice. That people in DC love to hear themselves talk so much that they're just explaining everything to everyone at all times. No, no, that sounds like a, that makes sense. Yeah, there we go. But yeah. Um, uh, but you know, it's uh, real cold here. That's nice. And in this, in your cold place, apparently you have supposedly come up with a list of things to chat shit about. Um, I'm going to start actually with something that's been causing a lot of stuff, which is, I still think is something that we have, we have a small conversation about that's gone on, which is um, Starship moments to set side for drift. Okay, here's my hot take, I guess, which is that I think you should do the whole show that way. I don't think there's a single episode that couldn't benefit. I don't think it's a matter of finding the right moments. You think you could just have every scene end, beginning and end of Starship just be accompanied by... Every single bum, scene? Bum, bum. But I not every single scene in Seinfeld ends with a bum-bum-bum. Like, I'm, I'm saying every episode has at least one scene. Yeah. And, okay, uh, I also think that for um, there are certain scenes where I agree the Seinfeld base rip is not appropriate. But I do think in those cases, you could do a curb your enthusiasm, like. Well, okay, so Wait, that's wow. a clarify. So for when the scene where Data's daughter dies and the Admiral comes <laughs> out and tells them what happened, <laughs> are you going Seinfeld bass riff or curb your enthusiasm horns? Curb your enthusiasm horns. Like the curb your enthusiasm horns are for when something really didn't work out. Whereas I feel like the Seinfeld bass riff. The Seinfeld base rip is for like when like Riker fucks someone. You know, that's like a Yeah, like um, when, but like, when when he fucks 
when they get mind wiped, he ends up fucking rolling. Listen. Exactly, exactly. Um, I think, okay, here's a question. Um, I forget her name. Um, the person on Star Trek Voyager who Chakotay fucks for a while, but then turns out to be a Kardashian spy. Yeah. What was her name? I can't remember. Uh, what do you think? What do you think is the best for that reveal? Um, Seinfeld. You're right. Okay, another one. Um, what's the reveal? I think also what's the reveal know... for um, Belana going into blood fever when she's stuck in a cave with Tom? That's Curb Your Enthusiasm. That's Curb Your Enthusiasm. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, your turn. Uh, I think it's important to note that uh, Seinfeld didn't have like a track that they would play. They have like the bass player come in and do these, so you could like do them. Is uh, Harry Kim in the corner? Specific home. Is Harry oh, Kim? Oh wow, the that's so true. Anything with Harry Kim, could you could add it, and it would be absolutely perfect. Yeah. Um, I think. Oh, wow. Um. <sighs> The scene in uh, The Wire where uh, Bashir, like, stumble, like runs into, like, stumbling drunk Garrick, and uh, they have to take him back to his quarters. Seinfeld. Okay. Um, the bit in City of the End of Forever West Kirk kisses Edith Keeler on the spot oh at the top of the stairs. I thought you were going to say when she gets shoved in front of the moving car. No! <laughs> no. I'm like, that's dark. No, no, no. That, no, no, that gets um. That's Curb Your Enthusiasm music. I was going to go with the Big Bang Theory music. Wow! But no, it's the bit when they kiss when Edith kills Keeler kisses Kirk and then Kirk looks to his right and Spock just says That's a really good one. Is that what do you think? Kirby enthusiasm or Seinfeld? That's Seinfeld. That's Seinfeld. Okay. Um Oh, the bit when Picard goes to Starfleet Command and it turns out they're all alien parasites. Kirby enthusiasm. I feel like the it entirety of... depends uh, whether the person in the scene is like coming out on top or not. Ah, that's true. Not entirely. No. But it depends whether... on the. Are they. Are, is there complete failure alone? Are they alone in this? Or is somebody else failing with them? That's a good point. That's a good distinction. Yeah, like when, when Riker gets kissed by Data's daughter and then. Right, and then Data asks him his intentions. Is that a Kirby? Is that a Seinfeld? Oh, that's that's a good, that's a close one for me. Mm. I want to say Seinfeld just because it's a more comedic moment. Yeah, it's a more comedic. It's not quite tragic, and it's not quite melodramatically tragic enough. Um, what about the scene in Enterprise in the episode Bound, where they figure out that they're like telepathically linked because they boned? Seinfeld. Specifically after, obviously, specifically after the line, we didn't mate. I 
I'm gonna have to go through this podcast, right? When I edit it and put the actual music. With. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing this cut out whenever I we make sure you put the actual one in. I'm gonna do it, guys. If I don't, um, sue me. I don't know. I still maintain that Star Trek can't do a comedy episode, but it can do an episode that is funny. You think they can't do a comedy episode? It can do a funny episode, but if it's set out and the, the whole point of this episode is to be funny, it can fall quite flat. I do think that there is this thing in Star Trek where a show is, like, when it comes out, it'll be perceived as really bad or just, like, stupid or, like, any number of things wrong with it. And then 20 years later, people are like, this is high comedy. And I mean, newer Star Trek is the first time I've been able to watch Star Trek as it comes out. I've only been able to do that the last like four or five years. Uh, And so it's weird when I watch an episode and I sort of have this double feeling where I think to myself, oh, this episode was not my favorite. This was like too goofy or too silly or it fell flat. And then I think to myself, like, is this going to be an episode where everyone's going to be like, oh, high camp in 10 years? It's like um, the first episode of season three of Discovery, high camp. Like, Michael Burnham being high as bulls on a, in the middle of a gunfight is, is camp. But we never That's get the, the first bit, the opening scene of season four, high camp. I think. I, I, you're right, there's like individual scenes, but you can't really make a whole episode of it. Not anymore, no, I don't think really. Even, this, but here's the thing, even the comedy of Lower Decks isn't camp. I, no, it's not camp. No, it's like... I would say... It's like, the joke about the naked time where everybody's just naked and fucking isn't a camp joke. No. No. They're trying to make a semi-serious point, which is what makes it so funny. Yeah. Like, nothing... It's not camp, which I think is literally the point of Lord Dex. This is a deeply un-camp show in a way that, like, the animated series is deadly serious and it's incredibly camp, so it's just unbelievably hilarious. Okay, here's a question. Do you think that there's any Star Trek show that would in any way be improved with the addition of, like, a live studio audience-style laugh track? Deep Space Nine. Do you think DJ Stone should have a laugh track? I think, no, not a laugh track, a live studio audience. They can just like ooh and ah along yeah. with the cast. I just, just think of shit like, like, um, um, every book's going, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> what's the name? Fuck. Just whenever guests are, ladies and gentlemen, Jonathan Franks at the end of episodes and crap like that. <laughs> um, I think the animated series should have a laugh track in the, the vein of Scooby Doo. Just canned laughter at inappropriate weird moments. Yes, no, I I would happily and like Scooby Doo music as well. I know the animated yes. series music is mental enough that it should work. It doesn't need to be Scooby Doo'd. The animated series is so interesting to me because it is like all of their original voices. Except so, sometimes like, it's just James Doohan doing a funny voice. <laughs> sure, but like it is. It feels so much like a cheap knockoff, but then it does have this like vein of it being like the original cast and the original writer. Well, it's a bit like Star Trek the Animated Series is a little bit like um, 
club on a Netflix show in the sense that they spent all their money on the on the names, not on the actual show. That's true. I mean, I do think it is sort of maybe it's because the animated show was received the way that it was, but I do think um like the Star Wars, for example, had an animated show way before it came out with its like you know, now extended universe. Like they had the movies, they had the prequels, and I don't know when the first animated Star they Wars have that, came They have Star Wars Clone Wars, which is a fantastically yes. beautiful and very stylistic and rather surreal cartoon. Uh, I used to babysit a kid that watched all of it, so I've not seen all of Clone Wars, but I've seen enough of it to know that it was pretty good. Um... But I just think that, like, for a show that relies so much on, like, these fantastical elements that require all of these special effects, it's kind of odd how long it took them to move into animation. Because mm-hmm. I think, like, Lower Decks has shown, like, how much you could, like, and Lower Decks is, like, a relatively limited form of animation if you compare it to something like Prodigy, which I think, like, uses the form of animation uh, to its full extent more than Lower Decks. And, like, that's not a criticism of Lower Decks, but that's not Really, yeah, like, I mean, it's still not trying to tell, yeah, like these like really big stories. There, it's a it's a lot of ways like Lower Decks is a spoof of Star Trek in and of itself, which I think part of its charm and part of what makes it really good. I mean, the um, deep, long standing problem with Lower Decks and Prodigy is that it still made it still falls into the trap that views animated television as fundamentally unserious. That, like, you can't make a serious, you can't tell a serious adult story in an animated format. I would argue without a show being funny and adult. I would I mean I mean obviously Prodigy is for kids on Nickelodeon, but I don't think that generally speaking I mean as someone you know, I, I watch a fair amount of shows that are like quote unquote for children and I'm definitely, you know, willing to put up with moments where when I'm going through it, I'm like, oh, I have to remember this is a kid show. And I did not really feel that necessarily uh when watching birds. Like I I would not describe Prodigy as unserious. Uh, I wouldn't say it was I'm not saying these saying these shows are unserious. I think well, I mean it's the sort of fact that like pr- lower you next have to, you have to present it with the premise. Like the two shows that are animated for Star Trek are the comedy spoof and the kids show. Yeah, and even then, you look at like um, lower decks, and sometimes it feels like lower decks has fallen into the trap where it, to be adult, it just has to be sex jokes and swearing. That's true, and I think and I feel like it's not even sometimes. Of... No, there's a whole gag in the show where it's just sex jokes and swearing. It's like no, just just you don't need that to be an adult show. And I get that it's funny to hear our characters talk about their dicks and use the F word, but like I can go watch Rick and Morty instead for that. <laughs> I, I, think... I, won't, I have a soul. <laughs> I do think it's uh partly because a lot of the people writing on these shows now had been like stuck writing Star Trek or stuck watching Star Trek for 30 years where they like had to dance around those issues so much that like I think there's a lot of like pent up uh, of those kinds of jokes, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean it. It also is like I, I get you get them out of your system, but once you get to the end, 
you once you're on to the end of the third season of the show, you should be like this, you know, if if I mean it's the end of the day, it's the rule, it's the rule, it's the Avatar the Last Airbender rule. If that if if you can't be as emotionally mature as Avatar the Last Airbender, you come on. <laughs> it was a kid's show that did gen- that that taught people about genocide. Come on. <laughs> That's the lot. That's the bar here, people. I'm on an Avatar bench again, everyone. Just so you know. <laughs> I'm like perpetually on an Avatar. <laughs> I've got suddenly got really, really into shipping soccer and Zuko, and I don't know how that happened, but we're gonna. Thank keep you. Going. Okay, that is that is the evolution. Uh, I think that you know, as a child, I was like really hard for. Um, Zuko Katara because you know I was a 12 year old girl and it just made sense at that time um, Growing I up was is... a real hater of Katara Egg. I thought it was trash um, I think, I, I, think... I, I can forgive it on the simple fact that the writers are clearly running for it and also that they don't have it be this thing where this is like this relationship is deeply inevitable no it's really not so I can forgive it on that grounds. It's also the fundamental fact that two people who don't don't shouldn't quite work together and yet do and in fact work together incredibly well is not just fine. It's also a realistic picture of a lot of couples everybody knows. It's one of those things where like if it had been like a Legend of Korra situation where like the show went on for several years and like the characters got older as they went, I'd be fine with it. Or even if they just did a like, even if like they kept the show exactly the same. And then when we get to Legend of Korra, we find out that they're together. Uh, that would be fine with me. I just find it. Um, I don't know if you've ever been a 13 year old girl, but there's nothing more unattractive than a 12 year old boy. If you're a 14 year old girl, a 12-year-old boy is, like, the most unappealing thing you've ever seen. In my opinion. Yeah, I feel like from that perspective it makes sense, but I've never... As somebody who's never been a 13-year-old girl, I'm just gonna have to take your word for it. <laughs> um, like, it just seems like they didn't need to put that in. They could have just left that scene out and the story's exactly the same. True. But it would have left a plot thread. It would have left a plot thread. I don't think a twelve-year-old can be in love. That's my hot take. Well, they're not twelve by the end of it. They're like, oh god, they are twelve. The entire show. Yeah, the entire show happens over the course of one year. No, but aren't they like? Well, Ag is twelve. Katara is thirteen when it starts, like fourteen when it ends. I don't think you'd be loving fourteen either, but like. Well, they're, they're, it's just like it's such a plot point. Like I'm, a, I'm fine. I, this is like nothing about Star Trek. No, it's not but it's more like, oh, Ag really hasn't had this. All these, the, the, the he hasn't had the big swinging hits of puberty hit him. Oh, ooh, ooh. Mm. it's just like it, the, mm. the <laughs> an important plot point that like his love for Katara is like tying into this world, and he like needs to open his cosmic energy or whatever by like letting her go i just like don't think a 12 year old is that deep about their uh romantic love i just don't i, don't I mean I, I mean you've never been frozen inside an iceberg for a century so who would you how would you know sure okay <laughs> i'm not wrong we don't know what that would do to a 
I don't know. I feel like it didn't really affect other parts of his personality. Yeah, that's true. But yeah, that'd be. I'm not buying it. Should we go back to the point? Came to you. No, yes. twelve year old came to me, and well, I'm 21, so I'm 22. Fuck, yeah, 22. If a twelve year old came to me and said he was attracted, I'd be very concerned. But that's because I'm 22. Oh no, no, I'm saying if a twelve year old came to you and was like. I am so in love with someone that, like, it is, like, stopping me from attaining enlightenment. Would you be, like, maybe calm, maybe slow your roll there, Junior? Yeah. But then again, everybody around Would actually does like, tell him to slow his roll. Slow his roll, Junior, is basically what everyone around him says, including, like, the spirit world. I just feel like when I was that age... It was a lot of girls that, like, had crushes on dudes and dudes that just, like, weren't quite at that point yet, you know? Yeah, they, had, they, they, they were yet to wake up and realize they had a penis. Yeah, and I just think terrible, It's a terrible point. way to be a man, that one. <laughs> um, but, yeah, no, I do take your point. Um, it's like the Avatar The Last Airbender despite having problems of its own. But it's fairly tight. And sensible and mature about problems in a way. But it's also the fact that it can only get away with that by selling itself as a kid's show. Mm-hmm. In a way that, like, and it's, I mean, Prodigy sells some it too. The point is that Prodigy can be serious, can in some ways talk more seriously about some issues. Yeah. That Lower Decks Prodigy is much more serious than Lower Decks. Like, Lower Decks has serious moments, but I would say Prodigy is a serious show. And it is Prodigy's a series show that has light moments, whereas Lower Decks is the reverse, where it's a light show that has serious moments. And I still think it's irritating that, realistically, if any kind of media could get away with breaking the Hollywood convention that adult comedy has to be dumb. Adult right. like cartoons have to be like lighthearted and dumb and silly. And crude. And crude. It'd be um Star Trek. Star Trek. Oh fucking hell, I'm sorry everyone, I'm really <laughs> tired. But it's also not like Star I was Trek just thinking about like serious comedy and I was like thinking about adult comedy, thinking about things like King of the Hill or F is for Family. It's like, oh it's done it's been done before. It's just people don't do it really with genre comedy. Yeah, I think it's almost like too far of us it's like you're asking them to do two things like for so many people like to make because like there hasn't really been there hasn't really been a star trek that's a comedy up until lower decks and there hasn't been an animated other than the animated series you're asking them to like to make a both break out of the genre by making an animation but also to make that animation break animation genre and be more serious, sort of like asking it to do two things. And like I said, I would argue that Prodigy does do that. I, I think, yeah, anyone listening to this podcast who has not watched Prodigy, I would highly recommend it. Yeah, go and do that. Stop listening. Go watch Prodigy. Come back. Go watch Prodigy. Silly bugger. It's good. You silly bugger. Although, uh, minor spoilers for Prodigy, uh, if you haven't listened, don't skip the next 10 seconds. I don't like, for similar reasons to Aang and Katara, I don't like uh, that they're having Dax kiss Gwen at the end. I think it's unnecessary. So I think the whole point of that scene was that it was unnecessary. Yeah, and I hope they never talk about it again. 
but I have a sneaking suspicion that they're going to. I mean, it's just it the whole thing, that whole sequence does feel like somebody at the end of the GC comments went, let's have them kiss, and everyone else in the writers' room sort of went, fine, fine. In that way you do when you just literally oh, have no don't want to stop. Building to it like the entirety of the season. And I feel like that's like something that is like specific with kids shows. Like the there is and like 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 it's similar to like after the last episode, like they had to throw that in. Like there's a certain type of show that's made for people between the ages of like ten and like sixteen, where if there is like a male and female friendship, they do have to like at least try kissing. And like here's the thing is as a serial friend dater, I can't say it's like necessarily unrealistic. But I, I I do wish that we could have uh, a Star Trek kids show that didn't have the romance element. I don't think it's needed. Yeah, I mean, it's the sort of swing, a swing either way if it's not needed, but also like everybody else does it. Ooh, it's messy. I guess that's what I was about. It's like, it's just like, it's an everybody. It, it's not in isolation that it bothers me. It bothers me that like it's like when you hear the Jaws theme song. It's like the entire season. Every time I see them do their little flirting, I'm like, they're gonna make these two kiss. They're gonna make these two kiss. It's I have the same feeling um, when um, ever Kira and Odo in the early series were like, we're just such good friends. And I'm like, just keep it that way, just keep it that way, just keep it that way. And then I could like hear the shark of Odo confessing his love for Kira. I'm like, no, no, please. I mean, there was inherently there was an inherent part of me that thought it would be more interesting just to have us all know that Odo loves Kira, but he just never is never going to ever do anything about it. That would have been a good move, honestly. That's unbelievably tragic in many ways, but it's also much interesting. It's sort of the the general lack of catharsis would have been quite excruciating because at some point you would I just mean, have to have is... you would have to that's have Odo basically team, go but... to her. Yeah, this is how it is, and I know you're not really interested, but there, I don't care. Basically, go. Oh God, that hurts. Odo is just a bucket of goo that can never gain catharsis. That is like his entire character. I mean, it's also that they aren't they they it takes they never can actually decide how bad. An evil Odo is. Yeah, well, actually, I like, I think, you know, we always talk about um, Garrick for Deep Space Nine as like your morally ambiguous character. But like, on, I've always found Odo to be a much more interesting, morally great character, especially because um, Garrick is framed in the way a lot of like gray villains are, in that like you think he's a villain. But then he turns out to be good, but he's always like flirting with the idea, which is I think the way that gray villains are traditionally done is you have an initial negative uh, connotation with them, and then you learn some positive things. Whereas yeah. Odo's sort of the opposite, where you you start off being completely on his side, and as the show goes on, you get more and more reasons to not like. And I think that's a lot. It's like the I think you know humans are generally pretty generous people, uh, especially with our fictional little characters. Yeah. Uh, and I think we want to believe the best in people, so it's a lot easier for us to see 
a bad guy go to the good side than it uh, is for us to see a good guy go to the bad side. Like anytime a good guy goes to the bad side, we always do want to see them come back. Yeah, and Odo does, but it, I mean, in the end, he does go join the fascist goo collective. Well, he joins the fascist goo collective to perform a denazification program. He does it to stop genocide. Yeah, I guess. Odo Odo joined the Nazi goo club to A, stop genocide, and B, perform thorough denazification. It's not him joining the bad guys. Right. It's like saying, oh, the US occupation forces of Germany were Nazis. I do still think, like, number one, he is a cop. Uh, and I do mean that in all senses of the term, including the fact that he, the thing that drives me absolutely insane when someone's like, Odo's a cop, and people are like, cops are good guys. I'm like, okay, even if you think that, like, hypothetically with real world cops, in the show, a, like, running joke that he mentions multiple times is they'll be, like, having to solve a problem, and Odo's solution is, what if we violated their civil rights? And Cisco's like, you can't violate the civil rights. And Odo's like, we could when the Kardashians are in charge. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> it was, um, that's, I mean, it's a problem that basically Odo's behavior. purpose that's incredible. is... Odo is basically, well, the plot needs him to be authoritarian and grim, he is. But when the plot needs him to be I am justice and justice is me, he is. And they don't, and because it's this, in this semi-serialized state, they can't sort of round him out. They can't pick one. But I think like, that is sort of realistic. I think a lot of people exist. I don't think most people pick one side or the other. You know, I think there's a lot of people that fall into the like, you know, authoritarian like trap, but still, you know, have good relationships with the people that they love. Like, I think there's plenty of people that have like a gay friend or a gay family member that nevertheless still have like really homophobic beliefs and just think that like oh i have like the like i think people are complex yeah i think the problem with odo then is that they, they don't know what his complexity is i think the problem with odo is they don't know how to make other people react to him i think like in isolation odo makes sense to me odo's motivations make sense to me particularly because he was raised in this like very specific environment where um like number one he was raised in a lab he was raised yeah. in isolation from his people and he was also raised not just like in isolation from his people but like in a world that was so alien to how he was meant to exist and then he like was sent off to be the like you know uh enforcement arm of this dictatorship um, and so he definitely had the cards stacked against him in terms of having a moral code. Yeah. Um, and yet he still managed to develop it. So, like, it, it, it tracks for me that he's inconsistent about it. What doesn't track, what makes it seem less realistic to me is that no one ever sort of, like, questions that, or at least they don't question it as much as they should. I think if the characters in the show sort of examined that duality, it would work for me a little bit better. It also doesn't help that, like, the underpinning of why Odo is still in position is that at some point during the occupation, Odo did something that everybody was like, he did this one thing, so whatever else he's done, he did this. And we don't, we never learn what that is. 
Do they say that specifically? That like he did it, or were we just like assuming that? No, it is said on screen. Like Kira's like, we okay. all know what you did for us in the during the occupation. And we all oh, know how you were for us. We all know what you did for us. But it's like nobody and it's like it's acknowledged by everyone at every level of like if Odo was just a hard like a hard level collaborator, there's no way he'd have friends and colleagues and contacts in the senior levels of Pajoran government. But we just never learned what he did. It's just never told what exactly he did. I, mean, I assume you're supposed to infer that he like was slightly more lenient on some Bajoran than he should have been, or uh, maybe someone just like the Kardashians like finally broke enough like bureaucratic rules for him to get mad about it. I mean, I just assumed that there was like he just let a bunch of people free from like or yeah, like. I was assuming that he like let people go when he could have like you know arrested them. Yeah. It's like somebody heard like a specific piece of information. Yeah, it's like correct me if I'm wrong. The the in universe explanation for the end of the Kardashian occupation of Bajor is essentially that they've like gotten all they can get, and so at this point, continuing the occupation is sort of a PR nightmare. No, it's more it's more textbook colonial overextension in the sense that like too many Kardashians are dying on Bajor for it to be worth the resources they're getting out of it. Like, and also that more broadly, yeah, they've, also, they've also basically lost the war with the Federation anyway. So they're on the, the government's on its last legs. The military is, has been defeated in the field, both on Bajor and in space. So there's no point in them hanging around in Bajor anymore, because it's also, presumably, they get a better deal from the Federation on the treaty if they just leave Bajor. Right. But yeah, they the way that they leave is very much. I I, I in my opinion, that's like one of the best elements of Deep Space Nine is the fact that there is this whole thing where like all the Kardashians are like, we like actually helped Bajor, and like we like chose to give uh, independence to Bajor, but that was like us giving you guys freedom. Which like no, it was it's not really. It doesn't. It's. It is a. It is literally the equivalent of the British and the French pulling out of Africa. It's like we're we're not getting any scandalous anymore, so we're leaving. We're taking right. all, and we're taking the light bulbs with us. Um. Here's a here's a side tangent I'd like to talk about. Ducat fuckers. What's wrong with you? Yeah. What the fuck? No. Uh, here's the thing. I'm all for thinking. If, if you think villains are sexy, fine. I get it's a fictional character, whatever. And if it was, like, one horny bitch on my timeline, like, there are freaks everywhere. But the number of people that are, like, so deeply sexually, like, specifically deeply sexually attracted to not just the lizard man. The lizard man I can can handle. But, like, I think the thing that bothers me is I would find it, less reprehensible if Ducat was just like straight up evil if they were attracted to like like Paul Wraith Ducat you know where he's like fully like eye glowing red and he's like cartoonishly evil but the thing that like bothers me is like it the thing that makes Ducat so dangerous I think that makes people like Ducat so dangerous in real life is they do have this like level of charm about them 
and it's what lets them get away. Like the fact that you caught was like the head of the occupation and did all these war crimes. And then in the new government just gets shuffled around. Like it has, you know, real uh, American presidency energy where they just shuffle people around from one administration to the next. And they're oh, like, well, war crimes? What war crimes? I mean, you talk about the Qaddafi. Well, the Qaddafi government is a bit more, is a bit less US government. It's a more like post, post-Soviet Russia where everyone sort of like is scrabbling for shit to Nick. Sure. Um, I mean, I just I'm... find the idea that anyone would like, because like that's how they get away with it. Is they they get away with doing evil shit because they do have like a charming personality, and that's like the most evil thing about them. Well, I like, still they get away with shit. I mean, I still maintain that the reason Ducat is a great villain is because the writers didn't decide whether or not he was a villain until really late in the game. So they make him sympathetic in what some ways. You know, they he has a wife and right. kids. He's a deadbeat dad. Um. You know, he actually does good things for our characters every once in a while. He helps them. He's annoying, but he's on their side in certain occasions. And that's why when he does go, fuck this, I'm a moustache twirling villain, it's like, oh, God, you fucker. You know exactly what you're getting into and you're doing it anyway. Right. What are the fuckers, though? I just don't think what's-his-name is very attractive. The actor is just... No, he looks like a rat. He looks like a drowned rat. He looks like a drowned rat. He's in full lizard mask. Um, and he's a war criminal. I cannot emphasize enough how much of a war criminal he is. Plenty of people have fucked war criminals before. Yeah, and I think they're all freaks, too. I think Hot Take, fucking a war criminal. Freak in my book. Uh, what about him as attractive? Is it the deadbeat dad? Is it the war criminal? Is it the ego? Is it the I, lizard? Because there's other lizards to fuck. He is charismatic. Give him that. I get. There's other characters. Benjamin Cisco is right there. Mm. Mm. I don't I know. I'm not. I'm not a lizard. Benjamin Cisco. Oh. No, I'm agreeing with you there. I mean, I'm not. I don't know anything about being a lizard. When he does that little eye twinkle smirk. Okay, um, here's a question. The people that draw fan art of Kardashians with tails, even though they don't have them in the show, that purely a sex thing or what? Genevieve. I mean, they are lizards, so it makes sense. Are they lizards? Okay, are Kardashians cold-blooded? Are they warm-blooded? Wait, oh, let's check. Because they're always complaining about how cold they are. Which would make sense if they were cold-blooded. But I don't know if cold-blooded creatures can get that big and have, like, brains the way that we do. I feel like there's, like, some... I mean, they... Sorry. These are space aliens. They can be whatever the fuck they want to be. I guess. Jesus. In the original script notes for Cardassians, they were described as humanoid aliens, sleek, handsome, intense. Ugh, there's where the cop fuckers read. Um, it's um, right there. I'm just like a planet of Timothy Chalamets. <laughs> okay, you know the little the little like spoon on the top of their heads, yeah. spoon ridge. 
you know how the a lot of the the women that'll be blue do you think that's like a that's natural makeup. marking or do you think that's their version of eyeshadow i think that might be their version of eyeshadow i like it i think they should have done more with that they should have done more of that um i can't find here whether their blood is cold i'll check memory beta that will probably say I think it's weird that there's not more piercings in Star Trek. Uh, well, maybe because piercings so are hard ridges. to do on a soundstage. But like, just like in like a like a Klingon head ridge, like a little, little bar. Yeah, hold on. They have a creature of both reptilian and mammalian straight traits, um, like Earth's prehistorical therapists, prehistorical therapists. Who cares? Um, apparently Cardassians are immune to the effects of the parasites from conspiracy. There's nothing here about Cardassian blood. Um, well, dinosaurs were warm-blooded. Like, about, like, there's, like, physical laws about how big an animal can get and still be cold-blooded. I know they're aliens, but, like, there was a PBS show I watched many years ago that was explaining this. I mean, I've never watched PBS, but I'll take your word for it. That's true. You've never watched PBS. Yeah, it's our BBC. It's less well funded. Uh, that's fair enough. Um, where were we? Um, yeah, I mean the tail thing. I often see it accompanied by fat art that sort of makes all the starter races a bit less humanoid, like. I've seen Cardassians with tails done by a couple of the name of the artist who does Bajorans as being a bit more like mouse like. You seen that? Um, yeah. I've always assumed that that was also partly a like reptile mouse like predator prey situation. Mm, I can live with that. <laughs> um, I know that the origin of uh Catboy Vulcans is um like a fanzine from like 1968. I don't like knowing that. Um, I don't like that. It, no. I don't like it being that old. I don't like it predating the moon landing. Um no there was like several fix in these like uh mimeograph fanzines that were just like uh, you know, he's like very feline and like describing him that way, Spock specifically. Fucking hell. Our grandmas were thinking about Catboy Spock. That was that I mean, my the first the time they saw Spock. Okay, I have a question for you, unrelated. Um, do does Spock ever play chess past the first episode? Yes. When is he playing it? In court martial, he plays chess with the computer to prove that the computer's been tampered with. True. And he also True. plays chess with Charlie Evans and Charlie X because Charlie gets frustrated when Spock beats him. That's true. I, I was looking at someone who was talking about the fact that, that like, in, like, 100% of fix, there's stuff about Kirk and Spock playing chess together. Well, it's, it's also like literally just in the one episode. I mean, the thing I is, all, what, the, the other problem, of course, is, that, is like the board. 
Yeah. The other problem, of course, is that um, the um, it's in the writer's bible that Kirk and Spock play chess together. So that's probably why. Oh yeah. Oh, he also plays it in um, in the against the Kelvins in by any other name. You know the one where they turn everybody into like cubes. That episode, yeah, episode like disturbs me a bit. I'm like, I don't like that. Yeah, the in the official Star Trek cookbook, the uh, so you know, there's two Star Trek cookbooks. Is the official one put out by Paramount, and there's one written by the guy that plays Neelix. That's an unofficial one. Wait, the Neelix cookbook is unofficial. It wasn't, there's, there's like a separate, like one that was published semi recently, like in light of the newer shows that has like a much higher production value with glossy photos. It's like, you know, I've got the official I've, Star Trek cookbook. I got friend of the podcast, Penny, a copy of the Neelix cookbook for Christmas. It's very cursed. It's amazing. My sister got me that cookbook for Christmas like two years ago. Mm. And uh, in it, uh, the recipe for Pomic Soup is from James Kirk, so, you know, Spark confirmed. Yeah, and but then also it does have Alexander City making baked bean spaghetti bolognese. Um, there's an incredible recipe of Tuvok that's just for scrambled eggs from Tim Russ. For what? Scrambled eggs. It's just a recipe for scrambled eggs from Tim Russ. Huh. Written with the air of like, I can't believe you asked me for a recipe. I don't got shit. I I'll be quite honest with you. It's like Tim Ruff seems like the kind of person who doesn't know how to cook. I'm really sorry. I mean, it seems like relatively good version of scrambled eggs. For whatever that's worth. Mm. It was a very like Vulcan answer to just being like, I just take a protein and I scramble it. That's it. That's that's all I'm going to do for you. It's the most Fuck efficient off. way to gain calories. Yeah. Do okay. Are Vulcans vegetarian or vegan? Vegetarian. So they eat eggs. Presumably. Are there Vulcan chickens? Are there Vulcan egg-laying birds? Genevieve, I'm not a font of all knowledge. <laughs> I don't know. Fine, I'll look it up. Are there Vulcan? <laughs> are there Vulcan cows? I just feel like Vulcans wouldn't necessarily suck on the teat of a non-Vulcan. You know what I mean? Are there Vulcans? That seems birds. illogical. I, yeah, but also like there is a section of some beta canon where basically, I think it's actually Federation first 150 years, where Surak describes the logic of cannibalism. Yes. So like, I wouldn't put it past it. Sure, I mean, sure. Uh, speaking of Vulcan dietary habits, it is, so it's it's beta canon. And I do think Star Trek is so interesting in that, like, there's, like, the alpha canon of the shows and the movies. And then there's this whole world of books that have been written that are technically under the Paramount license and are, like, official Star Trek books. Uh, but they, because they're written by, you know, hundreds of people over the last five decades, they often do contradict both each other and canon. Uh, and, like, some are more official than others, and sometimes things in them get referenced. Um, but one 
that they like made and this was like back when gene ronberry was still overseeing it. he didn't write the novel um i believe the last four novelizations were all written by the same woman for the original series movies yeah um but the idea that i believe it's in those the fourth one voyage home that spock gets high because uh or drunk because he has like a chocolate wafer mint and Vulcans get drunk on sucrose. No, I didn't think I thought it was coca, not sucrose. What sorry? Say that again. Was it sucrose or chocolate? Um, so the um sucrose is like specifically what Spock says, like in the dialogue. Ah. I think Kirk responds like you're drunk on chocolate. Huh. But the thing that he eats is chocolate. But the thing that he says is sucrose. And <laughs> which I do think it would be funny if they brought it back. I mean I think Vulcan should be able to get drunk on candy canes. I mean, um modern trekkers keeps like randomly canonizing weird bits of beta canon in no with no coherent order. Basically based on what the writer puts in. I do think that's like a super interesting I think that, you know, especially in this like modern era of of fandom where there's, you know, all this social media and stuff, there is this like discussion that's happening about how much influence fans should have over works, particularly None. continuing works. None. Um okay. None. We we should have no that... power. No. Speaking as somebody who writes fan works and has you know, wanted their stuff to screen. No, we should have no power. We are scum. We're I, scum. I disagree a little bit. Like, I think Jennifer, that if you I met people, see, we're scum. I have met people. I'm not saying that they should be like beholden to every single thing that every person with a Twitter account says. But I do think that, like, like for example, I think that at least for me, and I think for a lot of people I knew, one of our issues with, um, newer Trek has been particularly in the earlier seasons of um, both Discovery and also with Picard, there was just this real emphasis on really intense uh, really like depressing episodes where like in order to be taken seriously they were doing a lot of traumatic stuff and there was a push for I would really like some more of that, like, lighthearted. And, like, not even just, like, depressing, but even when it was positive, just, like, everything was so intense. And there was, like, no... There wasn't a lot of breathing room mm. in Discovery. And in Picard, again, not a lot of breathing room. So there was, um, they I were think... sort of both... Um, what's the word? Caught and perhaps paralyzed by the desire to be... Um, prestige television? I, mean, I don't think, yeah, I don't think it's something unique to Star Trek. I think that there's, like, this real, I think part part of it is the fact that we've moved away from 24 episodes a season where you have to, like, reuse elements and we're on a really tight budget to we're making 10 episodes and they all have a higher production value than the first eight movies. Yeah. Um, and they have a budget and the technology to do things with that budget that were, like, never possible before. That, like, every episode had to be this big, important thing, and we sort of lost those smaller, more character-driven episodes 
um, that made the series feel more lived in. And I think that by and large, the number one, I think Discovery, while staying serious, has sort of moved away from trying to make every single episode be a movie and feel like, like I felt like the first the first season of Discovery especially felt like every single episode there was like six movies worth of like action and trauma happening. Yeah, and but I the think... other point being that like season one of Discovery kind of had a coherent arc for it's a it. bit. Well, I mean, that's what you sort of gave up. Like you, in order to have, you did give up those smaller episodes, but the, the trade-off was that you could make 10 episodes that had a really coherent plot because so much had been happening in every single episode. I don't think that was like bad necessarily, but I do think it was something that a lot of fans, even the ones that liked Discovery, were like, I wish that there was, and like, I think especially, there was just like a movement in media overall, not just in Star Trek, to be like, this is the gritty, dark version of blank. Yeah, and it's, it's something that people that still people really haven't moved. Yeah. Right, I mean, and I do think that like more modern Star Trek is at least in part, like I would argue that uh, Strange New Worlds is a direct response to that mm-hmm. of being like, listen, we heard that like this like really intense serialized format is a lot and some people would prefer to go back to more lighthearted episodic. And I think like that level of fan response, that, that is the level that I want, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, is I mean, that- I'm... Not like specific like nitpicking, but like the general idea that like now that we are back making Star Trek, this is the types of Star Trek that we would like to see. Like I think Lower Decks is an excellent example of that, of like making it just more lighthearted. I mean, obviously it's Lower Decks is like a weird category because in it's a parody of Star Trek while being a Star Trek show in and of its own right at the same time. Yeah, it's I mean it's the sort of thing where like the whole debates around fanon and canon that come into it is that Lower Decks just makes more sense if you just, just go, it doesn't really exist in the Star Trek canon. It, it's not really on the same wavelength. Mm-hmm. Like, it exists in the Star Trek canon in the same way that The Simpsons exists in our timeline. It doesn't. Sure. Really. Since Bart Simpson's been 10 years old for more, than, more time than I've been alive. Right? Right. So, like, Lower Decks is like the same thing. It's that time... Lower Decks should just go a bit Simpsons and just have time not really pass in the same way and like consequences not really matter in the same way. What surgery is also, I think, a little bit unique. I mean, I suppose to a certain extent, um, Star Wars, I, I don't keep up on the Star Wars. But, Andor's good. Um, go watch Andor. It's, it's I'm really not going to watch Andor. No, watch I'm sure it. It's good. I'm sure it's good. I'm going to make you um, watch it. But uh, what I don't want to watch it. Mm. I have no investment in the world or the characters. Fair enough. I don't care what happens to the space jedis. It's um, not about the space jedis. There are no space jedis in the whole thing. There are AK forty sevens though, and revolutionary pause. I don't want a Star Wars with AK forty. There's space AK. <laughs> That's I space AK. Star Wars and thought, do you know what this could use? Real bullets instead of lasers. No, they're still lasers. It's fine. <laughs> um, but I do think that Star Trek is in a sort of specific place right now 
in that, like, obviously, Next Gen, G-Space and Voyager were all, like, the same general era. They followed each other relatively chronologically. Yeah. Um, And then Enterprise was obviously, like, a very specific prequel. But right now, we have Discovery, which is now, you know, 900 years in the future. We have Lower Decks, which is happening uh, at the same time as, like, Picard, which is happening, like, 20 years after it Next started. Gen. And then we have uh, Prodigy, which is happening, I assume, around that same time. And then we have Strange New Worlds, which is happening slightly before the original series. And yeah, we have a lot of different time periods happening right now. There is this kind of, like, lack of coherence that I think isn't really helping them in some ways. I mean, it's also that, like... I mean, I do get why it's sort of necessary in some ways, because I do think a problem that TNG eventually ran into, and particularly sequels that Next Generation ran into, was you have the original series, and the Next Generation is taking the original series and modernizing it. But I think at a certain point, technology kept caught up. And so you're going to either have to, like, make the technology keep ramping up exponentially to get ahead of where we are now. Um, and you're going to have to like keep doing that and keep doing that. And at a certain point, I think you sort of plateau, which I think is like why I think the reason that Deep Space Nine worked is it, it took the world of Next Generation and thought, what if you weren't on the flagship of the Federation? Like what if you were just like an average person living in this world? I think Voyager worked because it said, what if we yeeted them across the galaxy and didn't let them have a lot of our creature comforts that we've like gotten accustomed to on Next Generation? And I think that like unless you have some sort of twist, I, like I don't think we're gonna see another show that's like an, I, I don't think we'll see the next Next Generation. No, because I think unless you have that twist, it, you're gonna have to like keep outpacing yourself in terms of both the technology and the society. Well, no, the the next next generation of Strange New Worlds, right? But they, but they also set that back, so they're allowed to not they're allowed to limit them in ways that a sequel to Next Generation you wouldn't expect them to be limited by. Yes, I, I think like how would you? Well, that's what the whole purpose of Discovery being set in the thirty second century to go with technology that's so outrageous that there's no way it can happen in real life, like the whole holographic tricorder shit, which is just actually dumb and inefficient. You know, it's 900 years in the future. I'm like, if you went back to the year 1000 and showed someone a smartphone, I I'm willing to believe in like 900 years shit got crazy. Yeah. That, that works for me. It's a far enough gap that I'm willing to, I'm willing to like... No, I have no problems with I mean, I just think some of it's dumb. And I also like... My main problem with them shoving Discovery 900 years in the future is that they kind of didn't really do enough with the whole 900 years in the future thing. I do wish that they had explored it more. Like, um, imagine but if you it, shoved... It is an interesting you, premise. Like, even if you shoved, you took, like, a, tw a 900 years ago, so 21... So, a king from 1123, you know, a sovereign of a whole country, and shoved him in... New, New York, York City, City, 1960. New York City in 1960, or New York City, yeah, whatever. There is nothing, no frame of reference. I don't know, there's, um, 
There are horse, there are metal there are metal horses driving around beeping at him. That's and no fair, one speaks but... the same language. <laughs> well, they do have universal translators, so you know. I mean, I mean, it's also that like technology has improved, but not like in a in a serious sense. There's been no massive breaks. It's not like they can like transport from planet to planet. I know there's been a society collapse, but there's no signs of any previous technological greatness. Technology, basically, the technology, right. the methods of the the way their lives work has not fundamentally changed for 900 years. That's in true. fact, actually, there's a more significant change in how life, day-to-day life works between TOS and TNG than there is between Discovery and Season 2 and Season 3. Well, I feel like that's sort of a consequence, which is why I think you couldn't make a next generation. It's sort of a consequence of being like, we've built Utopia is by definition, progress is going to come to a crawl. Yeah, I mean, this was this is why I maintain that the Federation, like, is like an important part of the original series is that you know, Utopia is perhaps more of a thing you aim at than a place you go. Sure. Like you don't become a Utopia; you just spend your time aiming at it forever, and that just improves you. And where it is always changes, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe we're not meant to live in utopia. Maybe we went. Let me find the Kirk quote. I'm doing it. Um, maybe we're not. We weren't meant for paradise. Maybe we were meant to fight our way through, struggle, claw our way up, scratch for every inch of the way. Maybe we can't stroll to the music of the lute. We must march to the sound of the drums. I do think it's very interesting that in some ways, TOS is like a much more realistic utopia even though it is so goofy but like I-, I can wrap my head around how the society of the original series works in a way that I feel like there's always these holes for the TNG society and I-, I-, I think part of that is obviously because the TNG society has been a lot more explored because there's been now four shows that take place like in that general time period that all lasted for you know some of them seven seasons whereas TOS only lasted those three um and so you know and, and it was only on that one too we didn't really see much of society we only saw society the Enterprise interacted with and by definition the Enterprise is interacting with far off space but it seems like um the fact that like they they understand that like the people on that ship are post money but it's not like all humans everywhere are post money. Like people that are like within the the government structure of the Federation are provided for. But that also like me. they're not post money. Like there are miners. Like mud exists. They're like con artists and it makes but sense. But also to like me. they're not without money, because on in a trouble with tribbles, Uhura goes shopping with Chekhov and pays for the tries to pay for the tribble with money. Right. Like, and Scotty buys post- a boat. Spock calculates yeah, not, how much his training money, is they're worth. They're post-scarcity. Yeah. They're not post-money, per se. They're post-money so being a marker of, like, inherent worth, but they're not past money to buy goods and services. Yeah, whereas by TNG... And, like, neither is TNG, is to be clear. They just pretend that they are. I think that's, like, that's the difference. It's, like, 
TNG pretends that they're post money and yet keep putting all of their people in situations where there's money. Oh, it's like uh, saying we don't actually you know what it's like. I, I made this point to Manu last week, which is it's like saying we live in a post horse society. Mm-hmm. Because, like, you go back a century ago, two centuries ago, you go back two centuries ago, you get ev- you get everywhere by horse. Right. You go, you go any long distance, you go by horse, you go by carriage, you go by car. You go forward a century from that, you have railways, you have cars, you have steamers. There are plenty of ways to get around without ever having to get on a horse, but majority of transportation in the world is still dependent on the horse. Even though there are cars and railways, stuff is still moved a lot by horse. Even those industries are dependent on horses. Now, you can go your whole life without ever seeing a horse be used in a professional way. You can go your whole life without ever having to use a horse yourself in a professional way. You can go your whole life without ever owning a horse or riding a horse. But there are but horses are still important to how to life. People still ride horses. People still sell horses, trade horses. Their livelihoods are dependent on horses. So I I think that is a good analogy. Yeah, it's like you can't. There is no circumstance, really, the way the world works in which people will not need horses uh, or livestock or oxes or beasts of burden to maintain their livelihoods. It's just just not how, unless you're willing to go into every nook and cranny of the world and remove and mechanize everything. So can I have well, and also there are still situations where, like, I mean, even look in New York. Like, there's a reason that co- there's still like a horse squad of oh, yeah, the New York crazy. police. You look at like the because fact that there are certain situations where a horse is more nimble than anything else. I mean, here's the point, obviously, which is when the U.S. in Korea, the U.S. Army had to go and make itself a mule corps because they're right. like, whereas like the British Army just turned up with one because we're like, yeah, we're fighting in hills. This is more efficient than a fucking truck. So it's right. like the, I think that's the thing is that post you can we live in a mech, but you cannot deny that we live in a mechanized world and that has made life better for everyone. Right. And we would never say no one would like if someone was like, oh, do you use a horse for transit? Like, no, I don't. No, I don't. I don't know how I'd even do that. And that's that conversation, you know, when Jake is like to Quark, but we don't have money. Is the equivalent of somebody it's like, from, yeah, it's like a kid now saying, being like, I don't have a horse. Like, yeah, to an Amish a kid, kid. you don't have a horse. Yeah, it's it's right. it's Jake and an Amish kid, basically. It's Jake's from Queens and Nog's an, an Amish kid. And the and, and, Amish. Uh, I don't fucking care. <laughs> Amish, he's an Amish kid going, but you don't have a podcast, horse? How do you though. get anywhere without a horse? It's like, I, I, I don't. I, I get a car. Right. And Jake and Nog's like, but why would you get a car when horses are less expensive and less mean. I, I don't know these things. It's just the way that it is. Just the way that it is, yeah. That's what that conversation... I think that's, you know, that's how you can get away with shit like Spock being able to calculate how much his um, pay was, because that's equivalent to saying something is X horsepower, or Scotty going, I just bought a boat. I like to believe Scotty actually bought a boat. Like, he actually went to a Federation bank and went, I want money because I'm going to actually buy a boat. And they all looked at him like he was mad. <laughs> well, okay, here's my other thing about the post-scarcity world, which is that even in, like, a replicator world where, like, everyone has enough food and housing, theoretically, there are still, like, finite resources, like... 
there oh, are no, still the, like the post scarcity world is essentially post scarcity is essentially throwing so many resources at a problem that scarcity does not functionally exist. It's not post scarcity, right? Uh, like for example, the Picard family owns an estate, and I believe that we're supposed to infer that they have owned that estate since the 1940s. Is that correct? No, we're meant to infer that they've owned that state for generations back into the 19th, 18th century. Then they all left during the war and then didn't come back until like the 2230s or the 23rd, early 24th century. Okay, here's my question. Is how does property law work? Like, well, presumably, property is. Everyone could own an estate. Do we but also, you have the population of Earth has gone down. By the twenty third, fourth century, twenty fourth century, actually, it's down to like five billion, four point something billion. Is that canon? That there's only five billion on Earth. Population, the, it is canon. The population of Earth's gone down. I think because I think it is mentioned in an episode. Let's check. Earth population. Uh, you're gonna tell me? No, this is, this is something fucking else. Um, uh... I mean, even so, I assume that, like, if I want, like, my question is if I wanted to become a winemaker, that's my ambition in this future society. Can I go buy a vineyard in France? Presumably. Or do I have to, do I have to? Like what do I have to do? What does no one wanna like is there a is there a price on that? Well, presumably like you apprent you don't just start at the top of the ladder. You apprentice and you work and you do the grunt work to learn the trade and you work your way up. There is a certain amount of like natural conclusions that you draw from this like quote unquote post scarcity, post money world. Where like it does seem to go backwards. We're like, oh no, you can't just buy a vineyard. You would apprentice at one for a while. Yeah, and I mean like, the other point to remember. And like, how many that... episodes rely on the barter system because they like don't have money? I mean, it's the other point is that like, I think this is a key point of like trackonomics and stuff is that these people aren't actually functioning on the same. I like the way their world works is just crucially different. Like. These, if you said to these people, you apprentice to become a winemaker, it's not, oh, you're just making me work for it, fine, whatever, this is still a transactional bargain, it's, okay, this makes sense, you are educating me to become part of this process, sure. I am being fulfilled, This I am earning this through social work and social progress by doing this. Because just the concept of everything being transactional and time being money doesn't exist to these people. Because as Manu's fond of saying, it's just all a fun toy. Like you are willing right. to do because you want to become a winemaker, you are willing to do the grunt work because you want to do it because you could just fuck off to Riser and have sex. Sure, but, but also, everything is like, an invested choice. <laughs> but I'm assuming that, like, I don't know, there's a limited. If you want, let's say you don't want to live in the city, you want to live somewhere pastoral. Yeah. I assume there is at certain point a limited number of pastoral acreage. On the planet. Do you have any idea of how little of Earth today is urban? It's ridiculous how much of this planet is still rural. 
even in the Anthropocene. Sure. But England. You know, I guess transporters would also solve a lot of those problems. The reason a lot of those places aren't viable as homesteads now is because they're, you know, located in places that it's hard to get to. Yeah, I mean, it I mean, seems it seems reasonably there. easy. I think you've got to also consider that farming is less intense, most likely. You know, you've got to think I most suppose. of them, most of the Midwest and Saskatchewan and the prairie states are just now prairies again. Because they don't okay, need... Okay, but let's say, let's say tropical island real estate. It, not there everyone there has to be a finite a... amount of it. Yeah, well, no, I feel like tropical island like, estate is probably down. Saying, is there enough people now that want to live on a tropical island real estate that it's, like, incredibly expensive? Well, it's probably in the hands of the indigenous population. You probably just tell a lot of people you can stay for six months. And then everybody just lives with that because, like, why That's would you? That's the real dream. No, but I think it's it is probably like you join a lot. It, you join a lottery, and that's just the deal. It's like fine because you could just go to another planet to find a tropical island to live on. And yeah, you could not... find a tropical island planet. Yeah, you could. So it's like you know how planets only have one type of weather and climate, unless they're Earth. We only ever see one continent of all the planets. Remember that. Well, Denobi uh, I want more Denobulan content. That's okay. what I'm looking for. I do have to, I do have facts about Denobulan geography. There's only one continent. There's right? only one continent. Most of it is desert. <laughs> the Denobulan, yeah, and that's, and that's like a why fringe all, of like, habitable space around it. Yeah, that's why they like are so up in each other's business all the time. Is because there's like a limited amount of space, and they're all like cloistered together. There's, they've got twelve people crammed into not a very large space. I, I fuck with the... I, okay, the thing I like about the... I think of the alien races that we see in Star Trek, I think Denobials are one of the more interesting because they do play around... Because, like, obviously there's, like, the Klingons and they're all about honor. And, you know, there's the Romulans and they're all about spying and... Center, I don't know what the... You know, you get the vibe from the Romulans. Um, the Romulans are just... The Romulans just, they're just whoever, whoever everyone doesn't like that time of year. Right. And you got, like, the, and, like, the Bajorans and the Kardashians, by the nature of the fact that we spend a lot of time next to their planets, do get more fleshed out as a people. Yeah. But there's a lot of alien races that sort of have, like, the one thing that makes them different. But I did, like, the Nobel planet seemed, their culture seemed, like, thought out. And I think Granted, uh, John Billingsley, uh, he did a really good job of seeming alien in a way that wasn't, it was a little off-putting. It was like, alien, um, but it wasn't scenes. threatening. Right. And it was it was subtle, like the way, um, something he would do is he would eat off each other, uh, other people's plates in the mess hall. It's like a very subtle thing that he does, but he would just like take things off their plates. Which is like, a, like, if you are making a society that but people like, have like, no I, real boundaries. Right. And also, I did, like, that they didn't just give them, like, oh, they're humans, but they're more honored. Like, they, they were, like, oh, they, like, have a completely different sense of, like, what family means, what community means, and, yeah. like, the way that they interact with each other. That's But they still have commonalities. Than... Like, the long-standing plot about Flox's son is great. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. They're, like Flox. Like Flogs has his son, he's a, he's a strange son, and it's like really tragic, and there's not quite anything he can do about it. 
yeah and it's just like it's going to be like that and like this idea that like they don't have the same morality around like i do think it's wild it took until the denobulans to have with the exception of a couple you know aliens of the week and i suppose like the people on risa yeah. but like the idea that like everyone has this like very all the plants have a very regimented like oh you know a man and a woman love each other very much and then they form a unit and then that unit has children yeah I do think, you know, we're, we're meeting, you know, clouds, I think, that, that we could have evolved past, you know, parent-child as, like, the base form of a unit. Mm. I, I, the, the Denobians, I believe, are not part of the Federation. They said, that, that is, like, the explanation for why Enterprise is the first time that we see them. Okay, they're well... They're like, against the Federation, but they, like, didn't sign the Accords because they, like, didn't want to get dragged into, like, our, like, interstellar no, conflict. No, the Denobulans don't... There are two reasons the Denobulans don't sign the Charter. The first is that during the Dominion... During the Earth-Romulan War, the Romulans occupy Denobulus orbital space facilities and then bombard the planet from orbit so they can use it as a staging post to invade Earth, which essentially scars mm -hmm. the planet. And then secondly, the Earth negotiated clause in the Federation Charter to ban eugenics and genetic manipulation, and the Denobians are pretty okay with genetic manipulation. So mm -hmm. they're really hesitant. But it is implied, a lot of the recently written original series-era novels seem to imply that the Denobians have eventually joined my assumption is that eventually the council agreed to some form of exemption around sure. um, Denobulan genetic modifications based on this. Were they what? About, have they, have, uh, has Discovery touched? I, I noticed that is becoming a thing. It's, it's one of, I think, the few things that the, at one point, the series took a really strong stance on with the original series. And, like, now they're sort of... And obviously they did it a bit with Bashir in Deep Space Nine. Well, the, but there's sort of... A lot of the newer series, I feel like it's come up several times. I think the, like, efficacy the of original series, completely. The original series is massively involved with it because it's to do... It is eugenics is the science of Nazism. That's what right. it is. And to everyone in the 60s, when they hear the phrase genetic Superman when they're talking about Khan, they're thinking of the Nazis. That's, right. the, that's the dog whistle of Khan, is that he is the Nazi dream. And of course, even though the fact that the Nazi dream is a man, is a Sikh man played by a Mexican, but that himself sure. is even a writing fuck you, is that the genetic, even the genetic superman of your dreams, you Nazi bastards, is a Sikh. But that's that's what that's about. It's about rejection because eugenics right. is a fairly legitimate science until the Nazis ruin it. I say ruin it. Eugenics sucked anyway. Um, but it's about sort of reincurring that you, that eugenics is bad and no one should ever think about it. And thank God. But it fits with the general humanism of the original series in the sense that like we are who we are. Um, what makes us who we are? Experiences is what we are. You can't improve it by adding certain things or taking certain things away. You know, it's the same sort of writing spirit that comes around to them being like 
Spock is not a worse person for being half human or half Vulcan. Right. So you are. You are... I, I understand why they had took that original very firm stance, but I do think it's interesting how often it's been brought up in more recent Star Trek, um, like with both the Alarians and Number One on um, Strange New Worlds, and with Dax or sorry, Dahl in um, uh, Prodigy. Well, like I... it is something that is being investigated. Well, it's quite clear to me, having written the review and had a hum and har about it, is that I feel like the Illyrian thing is kind of them talking about queerness in a weird way, and not very well. That's what it felt like to me. And I mean, I don't know whether that's just because of the vibe I got, or because of that when they did the whole, I stand with number one thing around, and on like, socials around that episode that just felt really wrong. Hmm. Like I don't know whether it was that or whether it was actually something specific, but it is. Just, I get this feeling that that's the sort of angle they're going for there. Hmm. I mean, is the sort of idea not, of like without taking it as an allegory, I do think it's an interesting sort of challenge to the eugenics, which is that they modify themselves so they don't have to terraform planets. Which yeah, I think is like an interesting concept. Yeah, I think it's an interesting concept, and I think it is. I like that as a concept because it's like, um, this idea of like questioning the, the sort of Anthropocene in Star Trek and ecology. Like, is that better? Is it worse? You know, right? Like, if we're not okay with genetic alteration of ourselves, but we are okay with genetic. Uh, modification of the environment and what that does to the creatures and the landscape. Yeah, and we perhaps like Quest is also like the see what I'm season two, a questing of the sort of knee-jerk decision making of governments is that perhaps when the ban on contact and all the laws were introduced, there was a justifiable reason for them. But now, a hundred odd years later, is it really a reason? Right. And also the um both with Dahl and Bashir when is it right to punish the products of this like genetic manipulation when they themselves had no say in it? Yeah. And like does that like it does banning or like does punishing the end result discourage the process? And like is that like a, is that a good enough justification for is it? Is it a good and which in itself is yet another discussion on justice with Star Trek is reasonably willing to do actually. So I do think it is um, because of Star Trek's commitment to um, making every single person uh, involved with genetic manipulation a relative of the Soon family. Um, it does make the ironic point that if they had uh, committed one uh, fam family line-based uh, murder, that they could have stopped the whole thing. Well, it's only one Soon. Two soon. Oh, no, there's, there's two soons, but there you were assuming there's uh, an in between soon. And I, I are we not? Is I guess Dahl was made by. It's not to say that Dahl is made by a soon. Sorry? I don't think it's ever said that Dahl was made by a soon. I think it's just said he's genetically manipulated. I thought it was. 
I can't remember. I, I think, think it's manipula- I-, I think there's a reference to Soong's, Eric Soong's manipulation. But I don't think it's ever said that he was made by that. Gotcha. Okay. Um. No, three Soongs, because you get the one from Picard where they go back in time. Yeah, but. That's at least three. That's at least three. Yeah, but okay, though, but like, Noonie and Soong, Data Soong is an involved with genetic manipulation. He's just making robots. Yeah, but he still does it a shit way. Yeah, well, they're all terrible. Because Brent Spider's sub is very terrible. A quick plug for Tumblr.com. They've added polls, and there's an incredible. Uh, worst dad in Star Trek going around. One of the hardest things I've ever had. I have not seen that. I need to see that. Um, my Tumblr, having gotten Tumblr when we thought Twitter was going to die, is um mental. Um, if you find it, you, I'm you not going to. Tumblr before then? I had a Tumblr, but it was defunct and served no purpose. But now I have a Tumblr I use semi regularly. I love Tumblr. I think Tumblr is a superior social media platform. The art's better. Okay, Somebody did an edit of Hawkeye in um the TOS uniform, so that's that's good. Twitter is better for news and it's better for meeting people, but Tumblr is better for just like straight memes. Uh, I Tumblr, I these days I'm more likely to have a look at Tumblr for shit posts at work than Twitter. Yeah, it's for shit posts. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, there's just so many bad dads in Star Trek, uh, which feeds into my pet theory, which is that in your application for Starfleet Academy, there is an addendum or you have to write about how your parents uh, in some way have harmed uh, the person you are today. You see, uh, which is why Jake Sisko is not allowed into Star Trek or into see, Starfleet. You see, here's the thing, me, which is that everyone's like, everyone in Starfleet's traumatized. Oh, this it's like, okay. The problem is, is, at the end of the day, it's a very simple fact. If you sit down to write an untraumatized character and you write the dullest human beings imaginable, I personally, this is this is sound smug, but I personally, as somebody who has had good parents and a stable upbringing and a reasonably safe school time, would be a fucking terrible protagonist. Okay, I have a question. If you lived in the Starfleet world, would you join Starfleet? Hmm, that's a um. You know, if it's you're part of me that's like 20, 30, 23, 21. See, there's part of me that would say no, but there's part of me that also knows that the incentives are different, and I would might have a punt at it anyway. But, you know. Maybe. I mean, you can do anything. Yeah, I can do anything. I Yeah, that's the point. I could do anything. So, yeah, I might as well try. Oh, no. I was thinking I could do anything. Why the fuck would... Okay, you're saying you're on Starfleet. You guys spent at least five or six years doing grunt lower decks work. That's like best case scenario you get promoted. Some of us are adventurous. <laughs> there are ways to go on adventures that aren't with Starfleet. That's true, but you get away that don't require you to be in the military. Cool badges, uniforms, you get to tell fascist dictators to fuck off. I'll, I'll grant you the dictators. You, yeah. But how Who many are, How many are actually getting... Are you specifically going to be the one to tell the dictator to fuck off? That's my... Well, I will be at some point. If I work hard enough and graft and kiss enough ass, I get to tell a Cardassian girl to kiss my sweaty ballsack. I'm just saying that every starship has, like, 
what an average let's say 300 yeah uh crew and one captain so yeah but maybe i don't get to maybe just telling a cardassian lieutenant to kiss my sweaty balls like as i beat him to death with a phaser i mean you see the appeal now i, I see the appeal and then i get to play space chess afterwards you can play space chess whenever you want that's not yeah, but i can't be fascist goals to death that's true. If you want to beat people to death, you do have to join. That's something I mean, it's that we have like, Why would people? Why would you? Why do people who are comfortable join the military? And they do right. anyway. No, I get that there are reasons for people. I'm just saying that they are not me. Yeah. No, I mean most of the. I've been. Generally I, mean, the I do is, get the appeal of Starfleet. I just don't get the appeal for myself. Yeah, I think that's the thing. Is that. Um, Maddie side is right. You're right. Most people in um, Star Trek universe would just be pissing about enjoying themselves. But it's sort of also like the other point is we idealize the concept of a society where there are no consequences and no you you have no responsibilities because it's post scarcity because we live in a world full of scarcity, right? Right. Would the same be true if we live in a world where there was not where there was no concerns or issues or really drama? Like I actually take I have a, a a point with that, which is that I think it's unrealistic that we don't see more lazy pieces of shit in Star Trek. Because I we're in Starfleet and all the lazy pieces of shit are right, sure, but like I think out of there's what like over 800 episodes at this point. I feel like we've never really seen someone that's just like, oh, what I do? Um, I just like read manga all day. That's what I do. Um, I read I mean, manga and I have sex with my girlfriend, and I eat like you know takeout food, and that's what I do in the future. Well, that's this is the point, of course, is that we idealize that because we live in a world where you can't just do that. And these people wouldn't think that way because, like... You're telling me no one chose that life? So the people did chose a life, but that's also not interesting as a writer, and you know that very well. I don't want to... 45 minutes of watching somebody have sex with their girlfriend, read manga, and eat takeout chow mein. It's a fucking I'm dullest... just saying we, we make a show about them. I'm just... I want, the, I want like, someone's brother to go see them for, like, a 20-minute escapade. Maybe they get dragged into something. You know, you, you take that person and you put them in an exciting situation where they have to, you know, do something for the first time, make that the plot. But I'm just saying, we never see anyone that's just, like, unemployed. Yeah, I mean, the only the obvious answer is that's not interesting, which I still disagree with. But the I mean, more important one is that the psychology of society is different in the sense that no one is unemployed because employment doesn't exist in the same way. So everybody kind of works because working is kind of a hobby. I, I have a question for you, actually, which is: do, that, do you subscribe to the 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 TNG proposed philosophy, which is that in by in like the next three hundred years, with the invention of warp technology and meeting aliens and all this, is going to make the fundamental nature of humanity change. Like do you think that like the that 
morally speaking, a person from the 21st century is different from someone from the 24th. If they have like a fundamentally different what code of ethics and like way of viewing the world. Do you think? You have a, I mean, here's here's the, obvious, here's the obvious counterpoint. Do you think you have a fundamentally different code of ethics from a American standing on the deck of a ship in Boston Harbor in 1775? I think. Oh, let's just be a white American standing on the of deck. Of course, of course, of course. Let's be just because you know there were obvious. Isn't that now why people stand on the decks, John? But it's, you see what I'm pointing making is that you there are obvious commonalities, but your worldview is so fun. What you consider to be right and wrong is so fundamentally different. But you that, might both I, I believe think... in the liberty and equality of all man, but your each of your definitions of liberty, equality, and all men are completely different. That's true, but I do think that those are I, I i feel like tng imagines in some ways going a step beyond that where it's not just that like you were raised with different values and we've like learned to be tolerant and all these things but we've we've evolved to like a higher morality in a way like i do think that like the average you know farmer and I are not that different. Like, we're different because we've experienced different things. But I think if you take a farm, like, I think if you take a farmer in his 20s from the year, like, 1600, and you bring him to ours, I think, like, within a few years, he would, I think there's, like, a very reasonable chance that, like, he would, we would come to similar ethical conclusions. Like, I think people are products of their environment. And I don't know, I feel like TNG pretends, that, like, the idea that we no longer have interpersonal conflict. Yeah, well, the thing is that TNG says that and then gives, and then lies, and then just gives up on it. So let's just, it's yeah, not- Yeah, because not having interpersonal conflict is really boring. Yeah, exactly. It's also like, no, we're always going to interpersonal conflict. So as Manu Simon commonly said, the most interest, the most interested Picard show would just be Picard arguing with the local- wine board about the quality of his wine. It'd just be Kirby Enthusiasm with Patrick Stewart. But I'd watch uh, that show. I'd watch it too. But like no, these that's a lie. The idea that around interpersonal conflicts is essentially just Gene having blue sky thinking and then going, actually that's not very interesting as a writer. And they don't do it. They literally stop doing it like seven episodes in. It's just not relevant. It just isn't interesting. So they don't do it. And that's also, true. It's just something they say. It's just wrong. I mean what it could be interpreted is the idea that you might your the idea the I think it might be something like the concept that your boss would treat you worse because of something about you beyond the quality of your work is no longer exists. I can happily accept that as that being like people no longer hate people based on things that person cannot control. All right, I, I I could go with that. Although I feel like we do occasionally see people that still have that. Um, yeah, but they're often immediately chastised for it, or they're told that's wrong, or it's considered, sure. you know. I guess that seems realistic to me. 
and that there would still be those attitudes, but they would be seen as wrong and they would be chastised rather than yeah. just like evolve beyond ever having. Those yeah, it's more that like socially saying saying I don't think that person would be a good fit. For, I'm saying you know something like, oh, he's a ship, he's a ship member of staff because he doesn't care about the because, you know, I don't know. I'm trying to think now. Well, it's the point is I can't think because I'm not the kind of person who has his opinions because I'm nice. Um, but like, well, I mean, it, to go back to your point, I do think that like maybe if you take a random person standing on the docks in 1776 and compare him to myself, we would have very different morals. But I think I could probably find someone in like colonial America that had very similar. And I also think that you could find someone today that had very similar morals to the guy in 1776. Yeah, this is the point is that I think, well, it says the other point is that Picard is, when Picard makes all that points, he is in the middle of a dip, he's in the middle of a massive dip- diplomatic crisis that might cause general interspace war. And instead of having to face that, he's got to deal with some random investment banker from the 20th century trying to try to scream at him. So of course, he's snippy and arrogant because the guy's a massive douche. He's just trying to make. He's basically turn around to this guy. And go, I need you to understand. It's like you turning around to the racist guy. Dressed in Indian feathers, he's throwing, he's tying and feathering loyalists and throwing tea into Boston Harbor and going, "How you don't believe in liberty? You don't believe in equality? You don't believe in the brother of a man? You slave owning fucker!" In the twenty first right. century, in the three hundred years after you, your country's been run by a black man. Black men and women can vote. We've fought with the British to defeat what evils worse than you could ever imagine. Fuck you, right? That's right. What, that's what you'd say to get this person to shut up and sit down. And that's what Picard's sure. No, no, no. I don't, but, like, at the same time, of the, cause there's, there's two other people that get, like, unfrozen. And one of them is just like, can you replicate me a guitar, brother? I just want to play a guitar. Dude's like, wrong. like, 100%. Yeah, exactly. Well, even that episode is, like, f- doesn't seem to believe that they're that different. Because even that guy basically figures out, oh, I can just go on tour and now there are no consequences. <laughs> right. And like, yes, you do have that guy that's like the investment banker, but he's not like, that's not like a universally, that's like that one dude is a douche. He's a douche by our standards. It's not like, it's not like you took someone who would be like completely morally correct in our time. Like even the people in the 90s watching that episode were like, look at this fuck boy. Yeah, I mean, it's just basically the contrivances of your, you know, you. we can't predict how the world's going to look. That's the end of the day. That's the problem with... The problem with trying to predict how Star Trek would be and make sense of it is that it... You can't, you shouldn't, you just have to... You Your justifications for it have to be built around understanding what that world is actually... what they're trying to achieve in the context of when it was written. Mm-hmm. Like when I'm writing the Age of Midnight stuff, I'm less intrigued, I'm less interested in like, oh, what would the 23rd century actually look like? I'm more interested in what does the 23rd century look like to the writer in the late 60s? What are the problems mm-hmm. they they probably see it facing? What are the issues that would exist? You know. Um Shifting gears slightly, um, so I was thinking about, I was watching a video um, by, their name on YouTube is, I think, Verily Bitchy with an IE, 
Yeah, V E R I L Y B I T C H I E. Um but they just did a video about uh Harry Potter Boom. and how <laughs> uh well, it was very specifically about how part of the success of Harry Potter was it was something that was like very commercial viable. Um and like it did have at least a little bit this point particularly in like the first book where like Dudley is like bad because he just wants stuff and you know Harry is good because he was deprived of stuff and they have these things about you know like the bad guys are the like the rich old bunny Weasley uh, the rich old bunny Malfoy family and the good people are like the poor Weasley family but at the same time it was there was because of the nature of how the books were written and the fact that there was like like Harry is introduced to the wizarding world via shopping. Yeah. Like that was like the first time he sees and like there's all these different products, like not just like the toys of the individual characters, but like you can buy like every single prop that's used and there's like a lot of like good symbols that you get like all the ha- different houses that you can just like slap on everything. And I do think, and like obviously like Star Wars was like the original version of that, where like the real money of Star Wars was not just in the ticket sales, it was in all the toys. And like George Lucas very famously retained the toy rights. Yeah. Um, and I do think it's interesting. I mean, obviously, Star Trek over the years has had like a bunch of different products, and, and like there's a large amount of money in that commodification um but i think it's been less successful than it ought to have been if you were just, like if you're looking at it on paper like, oh no know, star trek commercialized star trek has always been weird i thought it's always been really inherently difficult to commercialize and more importantly the um writer the, not the writers the um companies have always been really bad at commercializing it it's not it's it's a very interesting thing to me because it seems like something that on paper should be so easy to commercialize like there are so many props from the show there's a million there's like different aliens and it has this like long-running really die-hard fan base you and can't yet, like, buy a toy <laughs> tricorder from them there's some there's a really right. fancy hundred pounds hundreds of pounds one and that's it. There's no that's like, tricorder. You can't buy a tricorder. You can't buy a phaser. Um, all the good, in, the, the quality uniforms are done off-brand. Um, right. The and, and only, you, they and have the... like sh- really specific. And I, I, I don't know if that is to Star Trek's success or its detriment. Um, it's because detriment. I do think... Well, yes, but it also means that it sort of resists the sort of commercialization of some other brands, um, which I, I think because Star Trek is a inherently anti-capitalistic show, the fact that it's, commer- like, to me at least, the fact that it's so bad at commercializing itself in some ways helps its brand. Like the fact that it's, it's always, so yeah, much I mean, easier to get a fan made thing than it is to get something made by Paramount. Yeah, it's is... sort of like the Trekkies are much less dependent. I feel like 
as a group are generally much less like dependent on the company for anything. Yeah, like I think if you like start to compare like Star Trek versus Star Wars, yeah. like I think Star Wars has been so commodified that that is part of why. Like I don't like for example, I don't think you would ever get a Star Trek show accused of like pandering too much to a studio in the way that you would for Star Wars. Yeah. Or like pandering too much to making toys in the way that Star Wars is. Like, I- I've never been watching a Star Trek show and-, and thought they only made this so they could merchandise it, which is something that like I have heard from a lot of Star Wars fans about various things. Yeah, well, maybe. But <laughs> My personal favorite example is the $500 Playmobil set. They can't get a deal with Lego. It's goddamn Playmobil, and it's going to be $500 fucking dollars. And yep, and people are going to buy it anyway. I mean, someone bought it, I guess. But, like, and and there is such a culture of, like, second-hand market for mm. Star Trek stuff, too, because it is, and that's partly just a factor of it being around for so long, but, like, I've never gone to a thrift store in the United States where I didn't come across at least one piece of Star Trek memorabilia. I mean, you even get that here. Right. Like, it, it's it's universal. Like, it's something that, like, if you want to start collecting Star Trek bullshit, you can do it for pennies on the dollar at any goodwill in America. Yeah, I mean, it's like um friend of the podcast, Sam. She has built up a massive collection of crap. No offense, Sam. It is crap. A lot of it. Like you don't need four copies of the Undiscovered Country. You don't. I know they're different, but you don't. I'm sorry, Sam. You you, you don't. And but like, it's still cool that you could do that. To similar to the show, there's a lot of of products that have this element of camp to them. In hindsight, the plates. Like, they're just so bad. Like uh, the plates. The the Playmobil, I think, will eventually be that. Um, the Spock helmet, of course. Spock helmet. Um, uh, a lot of the old RPG stuff is high camp. Um, um, the the character mugs are some of my favorites. The mugs are bad. Um, the mugs are really bad. Some of the old, a lot of the old DVD covers are bad. I think they're they're so funny that they wrap they they shoot the moon for me, like the the cover for Voyage Home. That's just like. A bunch of scenes from the movie, like pasted together, it looks like a shit post. It's so good. Yeah, and like for some reason, Spock's wearing a Starfleet uniform. Mm-hmm. It's a weird one. I like that they all have rainbows in it, so that we all know that they're gay. Apparently, rainbows are a track thing, but we'll live with it. Um, it has now been nearly two hours. Um. <laughs> How do we okay, want to wrap this? Can I tell you? Okay, can can I finish with my story about the William Shatter Cutthroat Kitchen episode? Yeah, fine. I don't have to. No, please do tell me the story about the William Shatter Cutthroat Kitchen episode. Okay, so for those of you unaware, such as John, Cutthroat Kitchen is an incredible television show hosted by Alton Brown, known jackass. Um, and the premise is it's it's your standard three-round cooking show, but they're each given $25,000 at the beginning, and then throughout the competition, Alton Brown will auction off sabotages that you can buy and give to your opponents, and they're all, like, wacky, and they're usually themed. So, like, they're having to make, I don't know, 
ramen and they have to do it they have to fish all their ingredients out of a giant bowl of ramen uh what it's incredible it's incredible there's like one where they make them cook all their food on like a boat that's shaking back and forth it's incredible television you need to watch it it's so good or they'll like they had them make crepes and they replaced all of their pans with hot rocks and they're like make crepes to zen um and then the premise is that you get to only keep the money that you don't spend so the more money you spend on sabotages the more like you are to win but then you have less money to walk away with anyway Uh. they did a man food episode so the theme of the episode is it's man time it's manly food for men and they had william and normally like there's like a rotating selection of a couple like like celebrity chefs that are the judges for it. And for this one, they had William Shatner do it. And this is like 85-year-old William Shatner for the man's food episode. And first of all, every single one of these four men are like little children. They're like, oh my God. It's William Shatner. Like they are like fangirling so goddamn hard for William Shatner. And like all every single one of them, like they do like a little like interview are all and like yeah i'm sure they're like partly prompted by the producer to say something along these lines but they were like william shatner from like a very young age has been like my view of masculinity like he completely formed my idea of what it means to be a man and these men are all straight correct (laughs) i assume they're on the man food episode of cutthroat kitchen (laughs) Okay. And also, William Shatner's, um, like, commentary as he's doing the tasting is incredible. Uh, it's worth it for that alone to watch. Um, right. But he gives flavor notes on all of them. And he does it, he does the, like, William Shatner speaking, where he, like, pauses at weird times. <laughs> That's, like, only gotten more pronounced as he's gotten older. Um, and I, and I did just think... <laughs> It was, like, such a, like, very specific encapsulation of, like, and, like, I have to assume, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe Star Trek is more prolific than I'm thinking, but, like, I have to assume that not every man in America grew up watching Star Trek, the original series, but there is this, like, cultural notion that William Shatner is, like, the epitome of manhood that I just think is, like, super interesting. It is interesting, I mean, and all of it is the cultural like aftershock and impact and after image right of and, like, tra- none of it's so really other... real and like all of these people were like in their like 20s and 30s in like the year 2000 like this was being filmed in like 2018 or so so like all of these people were born in like the 80s and 90s like well after the show was off the air so that just means that either like they were watching watch, it like... in reruns they don't even or have the excuse of watching TJ Hooker. It. Like they weren't even like TJ Hooker, perhaps for like rugged masculinity. Maybe, but like, but like there, there's just so many other I think examples of masculine men in media from like the last forty years, and I just think it's like very interesting that like, and it, it seems at least to me like these are not like professional actors or anything. It seems very genuine that like that's all just, of them were like, that's yes, strange. this was masculinity to me. Him. Yeah, him, right? It's just, I don't... 
and it's something I've heard from a lot of um like there's the the infamous uh fatty milkers pose where like that is like the crux of the issue is that this the guy that is like getting really upset that the the one girl is saying that uh Kirk has a pair yes. of fatty milkers and big tits. Um he's mad because William Shatner was this like pinnacle of masculinity to him. Like that's what he's so offended by. And I've heard that from a lot of Star Trek people, particularly the ones that, you know, hate newer Star Trek. And they're like, I, I've heard from so many men that like they're like, that was who taught me how to be a man is William Shatner. And I, I just I don't I just I mean find I can so I can see that Kirk was a very modern depiction of masculinity at the time. But it is very much the whole he was the future once thing, isn't it? But the, most of the people I hear this from were not children during the original run. They were older. They were either older, like they missed the original run. Like they, they have to have been watching it, I guess, in rerun. And even so, I just feel like Again, there's so many other examples of like traditional masculinity, and and like it's very specifically. It's not just that they've chosen William Shatner; it's that to them, William Shatner exemplifies a non-modern view of masculinity. Like the way that they are viewing it and talking about it is very traditional. But it's like so. There's literally just the cultural impact of Shatner. That's it. It's the only explanation. It's, it's yes, the cultural just, like concept of what William so Shatner is. So interesting to me that like the idea of William Shatner and the idea of his masculinity is so, like, what about him made that happen? Is it, it must, it, it has to be, like, people catching glimpses and, like, remembering certain parts of Trek and not remembering rest of it. Glimpses while channel scrolling and, like, Parodies as well. I think it's parody. I think maybe it is the parody. Because like if you look at like um like I'm a firm believer in if you're watching Futurama, the parody of uh Kirk Brand uh Zap Brannigan is not of Kirk, it's of William Shatner. It's as much a parody of the social it cultural image of Kirk as it is Kirk himself. The Kirk of Futurama is Lula, and I will die on this hill. Um, uh, we'll save that argument for a Patreon episode. I mean, I'm sure you're right. Fry is the Sp- Fry is the Spock, and that's why they work together. Fry is not Spock. Fine, whatever. Fry is the Spock. Okay, I, I know we're running long, but listen. Okay, he. <laughs> what makes Spock? Okay, when you say like the Spock of a Star Trek series, you're not referring. To, you're specifically referring to like the other person of each series. You're, you're seven of nine. You're Data's, you know. Yeah, you're okay, fine. Is like your Odo's, and uh, Fry. Yeah, Fry. You know, Fry is the other. Yeah, is the other. No, no, I agree with you. Uh, yeah, that's no. my whole argument, but I think it works. No, it does. That makes uh, sense. And that's why they're dating. Sure. He's also the first officer, I assume. Yeah, I don't know. I'm still, I mean, I need to go back and watch Futurama at some point. It's so much of it just is weird to me. 
if you haven't watched it since becoming a Trekkie, I would highly recommend to rewatch. I should go I back think, and like, do it. Yeah. Honestly, like sixty percent of the jokes are just Star Trek jokes. That sounds like what I've been told, so I should. I should go back and watch it. Um, but yeah, um, we have exhausted me personally, perhaps you. Um, if you would like to bother Genevieve more, don't. She's got more interesting things to do. Come bother us instead at Quit Star Trek Pod on Twitter. Email us at iQuitStarTrek at gmail.com. Throw bricks through our windows so if you can find them. Please don't actually do that. That'd be weird. Um, leave us nice reviews on iTunes and other places. Uh, follow, support our Patreon. Uh, I like money. And you like me. That's that's all I've got for the sale there. I will actually at some point put out the live show recording on there. I promise. I've been promising for two months, but I'll fucking do it. I promise. Um, Where's my money, John? You're, this isn't a post. This, this isn't a panel. So it doesn't apply. This counts. Where's my money, John? No, I've read the contract. It is specifically if we're on a group podcast and you're the only woman. This is not a group podcast. You you, you know me like forty dollars, and every time I offer to pay it, you're like, no, don't, no, John, don't pay the money, no. I'm waiting until the amount that I subscribe to in Patreon is that amount, and then I'll just ask for my money back. On that note, I've been John, and I'm Genevieve, and until next time. Edit more clips of starting to have Seinfeld guitarists.